We'd Like a Word. It's We'd Like a Word. It is. And we're talking about the Chiltern Kills Crime Writing Festival. Mainly crime fiction, but a little bit of true crime too. With me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And it's a lovely day, actually. So Steve is videoing this, so maybe we should turn in a little circle. We should revolve. Ooh, let's, let's revolve. <laughs> so you're videoing it. And We're revolving, I, not evolving. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And I see Tony Kent, one of the organisers. Oh, I'm one of oh, the yes. organisers of this you festival. You are one of the organisers, I know. It's yeah. very exciting. Yeah. And speaking at it, as so is Steve. Tony couldn't afford a whole set of trousers. <laughs> different panel, yeah. Tony Kent, he's one of the organisers <laughs> as well. And I see Vision Care for Homeless People over there. Yeah. I, I see Sackler who are sponsoring it, and they've given us a load of free pesto. They have. I've got free pesto and in my Bellini, bag. Bellini, free Bellini, which is I fabulous. Know. And there's Milton's Cottage. You should definitely visit that. It's a museum where John Milton wrote Paradise Lost. And we've got our food village. We've got our marple stage over there. And we've got our Poirot stage over there. We've got our bookshop, which is Chorleywood Bookshop. And um, there's somebody just trying to avoid being filmed there. And we <laughs> think managed to get him. Uh, we've got volunteers from local schools. And we've got all sorts we're, of stuff. We're so bad at this. We should have been standing in front of that banner, shouldn't we? Oh, yeah. Let's stand in front of the banner. Here we are. And we actually turn around. Do you see? Look, we, we've got a banner. Look, there's us. We've got some marketing here. There's us. And we didn't stand in front of it. I know. I know. Terrible. terrible, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I suppose we should find somebody to actually interview and not just talk ourselves. Otherwise, it's just us, isn't it? Right. Well, I don't know. There's so many okay. authors here, but they might all be watching. Well, let's, Tony, Tony Kent. Kent. Let's start with him. Tony Kent. Yes. Founder and organiser of this wonderful festival. It's and Tony Kent. Hello, Tony. author of a series of crime fiction books. What's your latest book and tell us about today? Latest book is Shadow Network, which comes out on the 15th of February. I'm forcing proofs on people today. You've got one coming very shortly, unless I can, I may have given it to you already, I can't remember. <laughs> it's, it's all a blur. It's all a blur. Uh, today, today is the very first, the inaugural, we're supposed to say, Chilton Kilts, uh, which is a crime festival that Paul and I have organised for um, Centrepoint and also uh, for Gerard's Cross. So I think it's the first... Buckinghamshire or Home Counties Crime Festival. Uh, it's it was a big risk, and it seems touch wood, is there any wood that it seems it might it may just have paid off. Well, the authors have all turned up for their panels. Yep. Audience has turned up. Vendors have turned up. Some big names too. We have yep. some big names. Yeah, and <laughs> put you on the spot. We were very very worried for it for the ten a.m. panels because the ten a.m. Yeah, you just think have we gone a bit early? Both of them are a half full. And half full is way more than you could normally expect for a 10 a.m. panel. So I'm absolutely over the moon. It, it's a huge relief, actually. Huge so relief. we've got um, the Starter's Pistol panel. Uh, Kaz Freer, Amanda Jennings, Claire Sieber, Tarek Ashkenani, who's come all the way from Edinburgh this yes. morning, Robert Rutherford. And then on the that's on the Poirot stage right now. On the Marple stage right now, William Shaw, Howard Linsky, Cass Green, Helen Fields and Alexandra Bennett. Yes. So far, we've only spotted one typo yes. in the programme. Oh, Alexander panel. Bennett. <laughs> on my panel. On, on, and maybe we won't say it out loud, but oh I'll just point it out I'm to you. I'm not sure that my panel's going to be crowded, because I'm up on the same time as Frederick Forsyth. Oh, yeah. That's, I'm on at the same time as Frederick Forsyth. But there's only so many people that can fit in there. Well, so. there is that. There is that. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just going you to have a load of angry, disappointed surprise <laughs> Tony with this, if I can just find <laughs> the, the thing yeah, in Steve, the leaflet. You are, you are a very funny man, though, so that's going to... You, you, you'll, you'll get round it. Oh, where, where is it? For the little YouTube yeah. thing I'll put together on this. So, so um, Steve was the one who noticed this um, being... Uh, qualified proofreader, you see. Oh, dear. Always comes in. Oh, oh, here it is, here it is. Yeah, so if you have a look at the, the title of this one, which is supposed yeah. to be Fireside Homicide... <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a very unfortunate... Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> can, I, can I also... Can, uh, I can't say this, but there's someone on there that I'm going to be pointing this out to, and he's going to find that very funny. I know, I know exactly <laughs> who it is as well, yeah, yeah. I know, so anyway, it's one of these things you had That's to be here. Sorry, sorry for that in-joke. And uh, I mean, one that's great, we have like giant inflatable jars of pesto over there from Sackler, uh, which is, it's like having, I don't know, it's a knockout or the, the Muppets or Sesame Street or something. I'm going to wrestle one later when I'm drunk. Yeah, rugby tackle. <laughs> yeah, rug, rugby tackle a giant thing of pesto. I, I, I carried enough stuff yesterday. I'm feeling strong again. I'm feeling strong for the first time in years. Now I'm going to convince myself that I can play rugby. I'm going to have to get a rugby tackle. <laughs> right. Oh, we've got, here's Laurie. Yeah. 
Laurie, come here and be interviewed. Oh, no. no, Laurie. No, Laurie, Laurie Stone's our PR. Hi. Laurie, so Laurie Stone has just arrived. I'm Paul Waters. We've been chatting on the phone, oh, but yeah. first time I've met yeah. you. It's a bit unfair to ask you anything. You've only just walked in. No, well, the weather's <laughs> lovely, so that's always a good start. Yeah, it is. And there was some very good coverage of Freddie Forsyth yes. in, in the Express and the Telegraph. Yeah, so we had a whole page in the Sunday Telegraph. He's an amazing guy mm-hmm. and uh, can't wait to see him today. Okay, well, that's great. Welcome. Thank you. still here at Chiltern Kills. What's happening, Steve? Well, we're just wandering around at the moment. It's sort of a lunch break at the moment. We're in a bit of a lull, aren't we, between talks? And it's been going great. We've got fantastic weather and uh, lots of authors. It's wonderful. Including Leah Denley, who's just Indeed. turned up, who's going to be talking. You write Sunshine Noir. You brought Sunshine. Thank you. Well, I do, but I must say about today's Sunshine, it's the, what, it's the 7th of um, September? October. Oh, October. Sorry, October, actually, October. and it's this warm. It's, it's yeah, I'm enjoying it, but I'm also quite aware that this might be the beginning of the end. And <laughs> I mean, I'm s- sorry to be you know uh, like that, but yeah, it's a, it's like the end, isn't it? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks so apocalypse, you're making our podcast work better. Enough. It's like this is so lovely, it can only get worse. That's what you're saying. Yeah, and it's the biggest crime. I mean, we're all crime writers, right? Well, this is the biggest crime that's been done to all of humanity, if you think about it, right? Uh, We're talking about environmental climate crime here. Yeah, we're talking about oil companies. They've known for decades that, you know, they're ruining the ability of the planet to support us. But they've just been quiet about it. They've been sponsoring coup d'etats in Africa. They've been putting regimes, puppet regimes that look after their interests. And look, we have amazing sunshine. Sad. It's very (laughs) Very, very, very good point. Well, appreciate to the converted here. We're both green, aren't we? We are. We're very good. Didn't you stand for the green party, Paul? I did stand for the green did, party, you? yes. Absolutely. <laughs> we did quite well, but we didn't quite win. Well, next time you're standing, talk to me. I'm very good at rigging elections. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, on that note. And on that bombshell. <laughs> Laird Enley, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> We are stepping into the green room, the hallowed green room of Chiltern Kills, and we want to speak to the people inside the green room, yes, that's you guys, to ask you about any highlights, people you're looking forward to hearing, books you've been reading, that sort of thing. So tell us who you are and something about that. I'm Sue Dorman, I'm one of the green room team. It's just wonderful, I'm just so happy to be amongst all these fabulous authors, Um, like Leia Denley, who's just come in, Steve, of course, and uh, oh what a crawler! Oh what a crawler! <laughs> They've actually got some of my books on sale in the bookshop. Oh, well you know we're going to delete this bit because oh, it's too absolutely. nice about you. Yeah. I know it's way, <laughs> way too, way too. Bleh. It's been a brilliant day, and I, I think we've had a really good audience. I think everybody's enjoying themselves. Tell us about something you've read recently. Um, what have I read recently? I am reading a Rachel Joyce actually. I'm just oh, sorry, I've just finished uh, Rachel Joyce, not the unusual pilgrimage of Harold Fry but one set in New Caledonia about the search for golden beetles okay right I'm moving on who would you quite like to be murdered here (laughs) do we have time (laughs) no I think we all have our issues with the current political situation so I'll leave it at that and not make it very okay you say I was thinking about somebody actually on the site yes I know yeah but everyone's been very nice despite writing about killers. Okay, that's good. There's a woman who's written a fascinating book about serial killer who's worked his way up the East Coast of America in the 1800s, and it's a gripping story. She's now working with an FBI agent on a book. And I don't know how this woman sleeps at night with, the, with the, all the research that she does, and then she just comes home and falls asleep after hearing about these grisly murders. And yourself? I'm Marguerite Fletcher, and I'm part of the Green Room team. I'm a big fan of Freddie Forsyth. Okay. I have to say that one person I'm really looking forward to talking to is Mark Billingham, uh, whose books I read, and who I voted for on the Golden Dagger Awards. All right. Thank you. So we are still at... 
Chiltern Kills, myself and Steve here. Steve's just got an ice cream. First one there as Hello. soon as it pulled up. First at the van. Hurrah. First at the van. And we are here with Phil Williams and Natalie Jameson from the Best Sellers podcast. Indeed. Another podcast. And they're here to do an event. They do one event together, interviewing various authors. And also, Phil is going to be talking to Freddie Forsyth, our star guest at Chiltern Kills. So tell us what you're up to. <laughs> well, we're trying to stay. I'm trying to stay calm ahead of Fred and Forsyth. It's a pretty big deal, and I've never interviewed him before. I know you know him, don't you? So I've spent a large part of the week prepping that to make sure I've got it all covered. I might not need it all, but I don't want him to say anything to me. Go, what's that? Do you know what I mean? So it's all there, ready to go. And then See, Steve, this is what a true professional does. Yeah, well, so we've worked with Freddie. We did. We did no prep at all, did we? We just turned up. Yeah, very bad. And how did that go then? <laughs> It was fine, because the great thing about Freddie is he has a lifetime's experience. He's got hundreds of stories. You've just got to wind him up and get him going. It's great. Are you by any chance speaking of Jeffrey Archer? Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about Freddie Forza. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> I was thinking about the Ukraine gig that we did with him. Oh, the Ukraine. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right, but yeah. Jeffrey Archer's the same. That, that's true. Wind him up, yeah. off he goes. So, Natalie, what about your bestsellers podcast stint? Yeah, so isn't that the best thing, though, about, I think if you're doing a podcast and you're speaking to writers, they can just make it up all the time, right? So you kind of, you can prepare, but you kind of hope that actually you've got to prepare for anything to happen because you never know what they're going to say. And if anybody has listened to our bestsellers podcast, I think you probably usually have me to thank for some of the tangents that yeah. might happen. So what's, what's hilarious is when we do them together is that Natalie goes off on a tangent and then blames me for leading her down that path. And then she always ends up saying to you, when we press stop, she always says, I think I overshared there again. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you don't have to. Sounds quite familiar. This is the man who always asks every guest, no matter how famous, what's your favourite pen? I mean, it's a very good question. You'd be surprised. Is it like your thing? Is that your... your well, it's, it has become that. You're the pen guy. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Jeffrey Archer had a very good answer for that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah well, kind of. He, he only writes in pens. He doesn't type. doesn't own a computer. He still writes everything in longhand. Yeah, you see, that always yeah. makes me a little bit wary because there's always some, there's somebody who's going to have to be typing yeah. that for him, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> plus, uh, plus, I think he was he was a few years without having pens or any sharp mm, objects, and yeah. I think it's just he, he's just making up for it now. I think. Yeah. <laughs> so I should apologise. I was basically accusing you of being a liar there, Steve, because we haven't had Freddie on Weed Like a Word, on the podcast, but though. we did have him on a Writers for Ukraine benefit event. So uh, that's okay. so, so that any, is true. Have you guys got any tips for me before I take to the stage and interview him? No, yeah. Don't mention books. I'm joking, I'm joking. No, no, he's lovely. He's, he's charming and lovely, and he's got so many things I want to talk about. Uh, I think you'll have a fantastic time. The really thing I want to say, Paul, and I, I can't convey this enough, because I'm, I'm aware that people might be listening to this saying December or even in 2024, right? Such is the evergreen nature of your amazing content. And I, I can't stress to you enough, as we talk... Such is that how slack we are at putting them out. Yeah. As we talk to you, it's the middle of October. It's 24 degrees. You're eating ice cream and being besieged by wasps because you're eating ice cream. And it's incredible, isn't it? The sun's bathing the lawn in front of us. We need to go and get ice cream, otherwise... And my advice for Freddie, yeah. when you're on stage with Freddie, don't make a grab for his wine. <laughs> yeah, so can, we, can I just let your listeners into a little secret? There is a bar here. There are two bars I've seen, right? Someone has been dispatched to buy special Frederick Forsyth wine. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I think he prefers the um, Odessa Vineyard, but I don't know that for sure. But that's what I've been told. Well, I have heard that just now. <laughs> Phil Williams and Natalie Jameson, thank you very much indeed. Thank Thanks, guys. So we're still here at Chiltern Kills, and I have just uncorked a bottle of Chateau Battier Grand Cru Classic. 2016, which according to Frederick Forsyth, master storyteller who's sitting with us, is a very good claret. A master wine expert, apparently. Yes. So, <laughs> it's a good claret. Welcome, Freddie, and uh, welcome to uh, Chiltern Kills. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. I'm looking forward to the, uh, the various people you're able to attract, because I feel very much now I'm at my age an ex-spyrator, not, not a modern there's a whole new generation coming up just as good, if not better. They're, um, they're dominating the market. And some of them come right here. Some of them are right here. 
And of course, the world of spying has changed so much as well, hasn't it? I mean, the new generation has got to cope with the fact that so much is done via the internet and online now and with, with technology. Technological, technological. But you've got into it. You've done that too. You've brought in, you know, people who are adept at uh, mining data and that in your books too. Well, the last one, The Fox. Uh, and the reason for, I wasn't going to write that book. I thought I'd done my last with the, uh, the, the memoir, The Outsider. And then I saw this extraordinary, to me, extraordinary story of a young man who had this bizarre genius-type brain. He could go in onto a computer and penetrate some of the most fiendishly cunning uh, firewalls in existence. And he went in straight into the supposedly impenetrable CIA, uh, either DIA, the American, and one or two others. And it, that, that was weird because they were all supposed to be completely impenetrable. Having got inside the inner, inner sanctum, he very foolishly, in my view, he left the derisive messages, said nothing much of your security. Uh, well, that angered the Americans considerably. And so, so they uh, eventually, eventually traced uh, the, the cheeky so-and-so who was do, leaving these messages, traced him to a Brit of only about 27, 28 years old, living with his parents in England, and uh, they put in a, an application for extradition to them, and to be, give her credit where it's due, Theresa May refused. Um, she said our cyberspace was not nationally owned, uh, and therefore, she hadn't broken any international law. Um, he'd embarrassed them, but that's not a crime. So she wouldn't extradite him. Had he been extradited, no doubt he'd been put un in a hole under Alabama somewhere forever. <laughs> I mean, they would never let him out there. Very vengeful people sometimes. So anyway, that uh, though I thought, well, now, if you can do that to our side, why can't you turn the boy around? Point you at the bastards, <laughs> um, and that was in fact done. Eventually, that was done. Um, but he's still he's still alive, very much alive. Um, he just had to promise never ever to do it again. <laughs> we have to believe him. <laughs> we have to believe him, don't we? And what would be your next book that you were not going to write, but you might just happen to write anyway? You know, I'm not certain. It would probably be something about Ukraine. It would be topical. Um, most of my subjects did draw on topical events, whether it's from the assassination of Charles de Gaulle, which was very topical at the time, the early 60s, um, on and through. Um, I forget what the last one was, but they all had a foundation um, in reality, in what either did happen, uh, was intended to happen, nearly happened, or might have happened. Uh, so I, like, I, like, I wanted to get feasibility as the guiding word about the plot lines. Feasible, they would have worked. They could have been done. So um, that's, you know, cap capturing a runaway Nazi mass murder. Well, that was done. <laughs> Adolf, Adolf Eichmann. <laughs> um, and, or black white mercenaries in Africa. That was very much reality, killing the all, of course, obviously. Um, and most of the others, yes, uh, there was a basis in fact. Are there points in your career or your writing career where you think you took a wrong turn looking back? A wrong turn? With hindsight, no, I think, oh no, and I'm not taking boasting here, but by good luck, I don't think I did make a really bad mistake, I made a few minor ones, but... Nothing I could say. That was life-changing and much for the worse. I don't think anything like that happened to me. At least I can't think of it, because when I turned from foreign correspondent uh, in 1970 to novelist, it, as it turned out, uh, it was a, a very successful move, because I was probably, fin probably finished as a foreign correspondent. Uh, I'd upset a lot of people in high, in high position in the establishment with my writing pro Biafra. 
Biafra, which is now, of course, everyone remembers what Biafra was. But it's very so that, that was in the Nigerian yeah, civil war, and, and Britain was supporting the, the kind of Lagos Nigerians. Children, and I said, I said, this isn't right. We, we, are, we are helping Nigeria, which is a brutal military dictatorship, not a democracy, uh, murder all these children by starvation. We should not do that. I was counterattacked by the Foreign Office who uh, discredited me in no uncertain terms. So when I came back from Bush, um, the chance of getting a job was out of the question. I was, I was well blacked. So I thought, what the hell do you do? And I mean, everyone said the most foolish decision in the world is if you're out of work, out of money, uh, to think you're gonna write a novel. I mean, nobody does that. It's, Go and write a rob a robber bank if you like, but for God's sake, a novel to make money. Um, but let's face it, tap tap, it worked. <laughs> so uh, from then on, I can't say that was a, a wrong term as a turn, but it wasn't a wrong turn because it made an entirely new career, and if I do say it, a lot of money. Um, the, the book took off, its successors took off, and I spent sort of nearly thirty years as a novelist, finally retiring, well to do. So what can, I, what can I say? You can't blame Mother Fate for having let me down on that. No, it makes me wonder, though, what would you have done if you hadn't thought to write the novel, if the hadn't, novel hadn't taken off? Did you have something else to fall back on? No. I know. I was able to write this novel and, and hawk it around, which I did, hawk it around the West End, and I suppose hope for the best. But if, if I'd got rejection after rejection after rejection, uh, which, let's face it, most novelists do... I mean, some of them are on their sort their, their tenth redraft, and still getting rejection slips back from the publishers. Um, and they, but they plod on. I don't think I'd have done that. I think uh, I had this manuscript it was called *Dead the Jackal*. I was hawking it around the West End. If it hadn't landed, you know, we're talking now about the spring of 1970. If it hadn't land, hadn't landed by Christmas, I would have put it in a drawer and gone. Tried to find something else, I don't know what, but tried to find something else. As it happened, I got a, a contract in September. But not only that, Harold Harris, who was the very, very shrewd uh, editor, uh, editorial director of Hutchinson's, uh, commissioned me to a three-novel contract. Now, that's, you know, that's like the goal, a gold mine to a young novelist. Three novels, so he said, can you know this one plus two others? So full of myself, I said, oh, certainly, absolutely bursting with ideas. And I got back to the street, I thought, what the hell do I know about? Paris, yes, but yes. So I thought, well, I know about Nazis, because I've been in correspondence in East Germany uh, and West Germany, and I know about mercenaries in Africa. So I jotted these two one-page storylines down, took them back to him on the Monday, he flick-read them, tossed one back to me and said, Nazis first, then mercenaries. And I want the Nazi story by December next year. This was in September 70. So to say I want a complicated story about Nazis, or a Nazi being hunted and captured, and I want it all in 15 months, mm, that's a lot. That's a lot. Some people spend four or five years of research on a story like that because it's complicated. So I, I had to get stuck in um, and get stuck in. I didn't I delivered on time. And it became the Odessa file. There we are. <laughs> I think that's a great biography name, isn't it? Nazis first, mercenary second. <laughs> that yes. Be a great title for a book. That, that, that could have been the subtitle for your memoirs or your autobiography. Mm. Nazis, Na first. Nazis first, mercenary <laughs> second. <laughs> I wonder, are there times in your writing career when you felt in danger, in physical danger? Yes, 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 plenty of times, yes. I went into some, some rather funny rather, uh, what I put it, sort of strange hot spots like uh, in the capital of Somalia, Mogadishu. Mm. Well, what's, what's that Guinea and the... Uh, Guinea-Bissau? Uh, well, there's Guinea-Bissau, there's Guinea. Guinea-Bissau. Guinea-Bissau. Guinea-Bissau, which was then impregnated with Colombian cocaine lords and very much under their control. 
and they owned the chief of police, and they didn't like being investigated, which is what I was doing. Various various hotspots in like like uh, Equatorial Guinea, which was then a very very brutal dictator. Did you ever find yourself having to talk your way out of a tight spot? Yeah, they were nicked in East Germany. I was caught crawling through the long grass. You might say, well, is that illegal? I was in a Soviet maneuver ground at the time, yes. So they didn't take very kindly. And the question was that I'd lost my car keys. I was was on my my hands and knees trying to find my car keys. There a lot of exchange glances like, oh, yeah. But um, for some reason, they they didn't want to make an issue of it, apparently. So I was thrown out and told never to come back to Magdeburg again. And, you know, I never have been back to Magdeburg. <laughs> Not my favourite city. Oh, well, I, I, if anyone from Magdeburg is listening, maybe they'd like to extend an invitation it's a it's a strange place. I, I was over in Germany a couple of years ago, and I was staying in East Germany, and and they they wear their battle scars, you know. They're they're quite happy with all the graffiti on the walls. They've just left it there. They've left all the bullet holes and everything like that. Yeah, it's it's like it's a period of their history that they they don't want to ignore. In fact, if anything, they they sort of champion. This is how bad things were. Look how much better things are. They're, it's it's a very it's a very um, uh, positive place now. That's the thing I found. It really is. I feel lucky that I got to cross the Berlin Wall in 1989 in the summer while it was still a a wall before it collapsed later that year. And the difference was so stark and such a sad barrier. I'm thinking of people drowning in the river because they couldn't get help from the West German side because anyone who tried to help them would be shot going into the river. They couldn't get help from the East German side because of the barriers there. And they eventually established some little telephone hop- hotlines specifically for people drowning. How ridiculous that mm. not even that level of cooperation. But you find places like that. I mean, the, when I was in America once, we, we drove down to the border with Mexico. I was in California, drove down to the border with Mexico. Didn't realise that the border going into Mexico has no control at all. We literally went under a motorway bridge and it's welcome to Mexico. And it was like someone had dialed back the world about 50 years because suddenly all these lovely American houses suddenly turned to all these rotting places with sort of plaster falling off the wall. It was it was amazing. It was so stark. Just going under that bridge and everything changed. And it was a bit like that, as you say, with East and West Germany. What do you think about, I suppose, Britain's place in the world? Because you were writing at a time when Britain was a mover and, and a shaker and, and oh. helping influence the outcomes of international politics. Not that it doesn't have some influence still, but it certainly feels as though things have changed. Things have changed. Britain is still, and, and you very rarely read this in our own media, still rich, still influential, um, could be powerful, but in my view has in over 20 years, and there's, of those 20 years, 13 at least have been Tory years, have frittered away what she once had. And it, it's, it's tragic in as much as you know, we have been reduced. But by our own governmental and official stupidity, we are um, financially in a disaster, needn't have happened, entirely self-inflicted. Politically, needn't have happened, since self-inflicted. We're constantly telling ourselves that we're we're wrong, we haven't got it anymore, blah, blah, blah. I know what the outer world thinks of us. Our armed forces have awesome respect. We don't seem to bear that in mind. Um, our uh, financial institutions dominate the markets. The, the city is still a square mile of extreme financial power. It could be more so, but so much has been frittered away. But it's it's all there, um, except the leadership. I'm sorry, I don't have anything against Mr. Rishi Sunak, but he's not a natural leader. And Margaret Thatcher was, and Churchill was. And I don't know what the exact calibre of a leader is, but whatever it is, 
This nice young man doesn't have it. Um, and so we are not being led. Starmer doesn't have it either. <laughs> so so not, there's no contrast there. Uh, we are, politically speaking, in a mess. Frederick Forsyth, thank you very much for talking to Weed Like a Word. Thank, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. So that was Frederick Forsyth. And you may have noticed the uh, the quality of the sound has changed here on We'd Like a Word. That's because some time has passed. Chiltern Kills is over. We've still a bit more to share with you about it. But uh, since we um, spoke to Frederick, what have you been up to? Well, all sorts of things. The usual stuff, you know, a bit of writing here, a bit of modelling there. Um, and by modelling, I don't mean, you know, bikini shoots or things like that. I mean, I've been actually making models. I came up with an idea for a project a little while ago, which was I'm fascinated by folklore and by folk festivals and the costumes particularly I really, really like. So I thought I'd start making a few little like one twelfth scale models of people from these folk festivals. But the big worry was if you get the details wrong, there's loads of fans and, and you know, really quite... Strongly. The Wicker Man will come and yeah, yeah. exact and retribution. There's a lot of very strongly opinionated people out there who say, I'm sorry you got the dragon scales are too big or the horns well, are too you've long. got some of them here. What, what's, what's, yeah, so what's this thing? Can I pick it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I've done is I've actually created characters from an imaginary folk festival. They're kind of loosely based on real ones. Like the one you're holding at the moment, it's called the Jangler. If I can describe it, it's a, it's a, it's a figure who's in a sort of... A hairy costume with big cowbells hanging all over him and he's got a big round head with a couple of ram's horns and a bit of a frowny look he's kind of based on a thing called the dorset usa which is a real thing it was it was a wooden costume head that was in the um possession of a family down in dorset for years and years and when people started taking an interest in it because of the folklore attached to it, it, it went to go on display somewhere in Somerset and somehow got lost on the train journey and it's never been found since. But enough photographs and drawings of it exist that it appears on the front covers of, of God knows how many books to do with folklore and folk festivals. So I thought, well, I'm going to nick the basic idea of the Dorset Usa, Usa but make it differently and make it myself. So that's what this little figure here is all it's about. Little, it's about, I don't know, half a foot high. Yeah, he's about he's about six inches high. Um, like I said, he's got this big head that looks like it's a, a sort of canvas bag with eyes and a nose and a frowny mouth and these ram's horns coming out of it. And as I said, this hairy costume with, with bells hanging on ropes, cowbells. And you mentioned writing. What are you writing? I'm actually doing... I've, I, you know, I've gone back to an old novel. I wrote a, a comedy, sci-fi, fantasy-ish novel about 20 years ago and didn't do anything with it. And... Uh, I found it recently and started going through it and I was actually giggling at my own jokes. So I thought, well, maybe maybe I could give it a bit of a 21st century uplift. Okay, so, what's it called? Uh, I, I, I don't have a title at the moment. At the, at the moment, at the moment, it's called... Um, I'm trying to remember what I'm calling it. Hang on, give me a second. You might have to edit this bit. What have I actually called it? Um, what, edit the bit that makes you look a bit dim? Obviously, yeah, this is right. going to yeah, stay yeah. in. What's it called? Well, at the moment, it's got the working title of Underlined because part of it takes place in the London Underground. It was originally going to be called Orpheus on the Underground because I thought it was a nice pun on Orpheus in the Underworld, but I, that joke's been done a few times and I thought, no, 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 in interim period. So now it, it's just called Underlined at the moment, but it may change. Okay, I have been writing. I had to... Uh, well, my agent suggested I might want to consider, totally up to me, totally up to me, uh, whether I wanted to introduce a bit more death into my cosy crime Indian-Irish crossover set in contemporary Delhi. Cheery. Which I have now done. Oh, good, good. So I finished that on Saturday. It's a bit long. I'm just going through it and chopping bits out. But that's mainly done, so I'm happy about that. So what was called The Disappearing Pilgrim is now, has a new working title, Murder in Moonlit Square because it takes place in an area called Chandni Chok, which means moonlight, moonlit square or place and in Old you, Delhi. You have just been in India. Oh, yeah. And since we were, I went to India. I know that's family connections because your wife's Indian, but was it part research as well? Ah, yeah. I was wandering around the area, just sitting there, watching the world go by, listening to people. So I stand out, naturally, in India, attract attention, or not that I get any bother, but you know, people notice me. But I found if I sit quietly beside someone even more noticeable, like 
I don't know, a singing money changer or something like that. And then everyone's looking at him and I, I can lurk <laughs> and, you know, mentally record details and wander about the lanes quite happily. But also people have heard from authors and broadcasters and podcasters appearing at Children Kills. We actually appeared too. And I wonder if we should share some of that very briefly. Don't see why not. Okay, well, here's a bit. So the two main organisers were, were me and Tony Kent, another author who we've had on the podcast. But we also had huge support, especially on the day, like the event day bosses, where my wife, Anisha Minocha, and Tony's wife, Victoria Christian. And we both, yourself and myself, did stuff on the Marple stage. So there we were did. two stages, the Marple stage and the Poirot stage. So... Anisha was kind of overseeing the Poirot stage and Victoria was overseeing the Marple stage. So here she is just doing a bit of an introduction to a session I did about crime set overseas. Good afternoon, Chilton Kills. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. All proceeds from today's Children Kills are in aid of Centrepoint. Prince William's the patron of this charity. It's a charity with a mission to end youth homelessness. So thank you very much for all your support. And Thank you, indeed, to our authors who will be joining us on stage who've all given their time for free to be here today and share their infinite wisdom and the secrets of their creativity. So that's Victoria. I was going to just let it run straight into the session, but as Victoria was speaking, various of us authors who were going to be on the panel were mic'd up off stage. <laughs> and um, I think Laura Marshall, or maybe it was Kate Quinn, actually, Kate Quinn, she was saying, what? This is called, is this tax deductible? Which was kind of a joke about doing research overseas. And she, I don't know anything about tax. I'm not an accountant. Oh, no, this is terrible. And her mic was on. <laughs> so on the recording, you have her chatting away to lay off stage. Could have been worse. They could have been in the loo. <laughs> could have been worse. <laughs> it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse. But anyway, I'll play a little bit of the session. So I was chairing it. So on stage, there was uh, Laura Marshall, Kate Quinn, Leia Denley, who we've heard from already in this episode, and Susie Holiday and me. So Laura Marshall's book is at least partly set in Italy. And she... Uh, revealed that she hadn't actually ever been to Italy. And so, because I'm like really nasty and horrible, I then put it to a vote of the audience whether that was okay for authors to write stuff set in places they'd never been. So um, here's, uh, you're going to hear everyone, Laura, then Kate backing her up, uh, me and Leia Denley and Susie Holiday, And we don't all agree and we have a vote. And you'll just have to wait and see how the vote goes. Will she be vindicated or not? The reason I set it in Italy was it was always going to be set on a hot holiday-type destination, luxurious villa, you know, that kind of escapism. Uh, the reason I chose Italy was because I thought I was going to be going to Italy um, for a friend's 50th birthday, in fact. Uh, but that was in August 2021. Um, so that didn't happen uh, because it was pandemic obviously it was quite difficult to travel to Italy at that time so we ended up not going but by that time I was kind of committed to the book so just had to make it up really um, so yeah that was why Italy okay, okay. That's, that's a great so book. you've never actually been to Italy I've never been to Italy hey, no. but Google is a brilliant thing okay. Yeah, and I should also say, I also write historical fiction. I have never been to 17th century London, but I still <laughs> gave it a good go, so I think it's possible to do. Um, so my book... So I used to be a travel journalist, so all of my books tend to be set somewhere um, that, that I regard as more interesting than England. Mm -hmm. But um, this, the last book that I did is, was called... Well, it was called The Lock-In, and it's about um, a, a lock-in in a, in a sort of rough Aussie pub set way out in the outback, back with two beautiful American barmaids, and um, you know, what, can, what can go wrong, but something goes badly wrong, and the local ends up brutally murdered. Um, and the reason I chose that location was because I have worked as a barmaid in rural Australia in my 20s, and um, I was really interested in the way that, in those kind of environments, you can sort of go quite native, so things that seem 
unusual to you when you first join that environment, such as very heavy drinking, such as um, very sexually aggressive behaviour that would initially seem jarring and unusual becomes the norm uh, you know, reasonably fast, actually, I, I found. So that was why I chose to set it there. Peter May was saying he never writes about anywhere that he hasn't been to. Is that okay to not go to places, or is I'm, Google I'm okay? Go, yeah, but, but I think... I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I think it often doesn't seem okay to readers, and that can be a bit of a hard thing. I think readers would generally prefer to feel that they're getting some privileged insight that they... Shall we have a vote? <laughs> Let's have a vote. Yes. Is it, do you have to go to the place before you write it? But you must remember that I didn't go to the place ha before so you Hands up that one. Do you have to go? Okay. Or is it okay, nice to go, but it's okay if you do a lot of research and maybe it's a difficult place to go to? Thank you. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> but I think, but, but to bring I'm, back my head, that, that really counts every historical thrill. Well, I mean, every, go, or every well, historical you book, you can't, you can't possibly have been No, I mean, to. I agree. I agree. Yeah. It would be good to go there. I was going to go. Um, but <laughs> I mean, my book, most of it's set back here, actually, but the parts that are set in Italy, which is maybe like a third of the book, is set on the holiday, and the rest of the book is afterwards, after the funeral, when she's found out maybe he was having an affair, was he in fact murdered? You know, because his death is ostensibly an accident. Not, not a murder. But the bits that are set in Italy are all set in the holiday villa, which has got its own private beach. But they don't actually go anywhere else in Italy. So, you know, in a sense, it's just a hot holiday villa, which I have been to hot holiday villas, just <laughs> they didn't happen to be in Italy. I mean, I did, but like food, I like Italian food, so I kind of, I've got quite a lot of nice food in there, which obviously I have eaten, just not in Ooh, Italy. Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, I love writing food. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I wrote um, a speculative fiction novel, The Beautiful Side of the Moon. I've Did never been to the moon. moon. You haven't been to the moon? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a fraud now. Oh, wow. I mean, I don't know how you could have got you, that right you, you ever, uh, you ever written about somewhere you haven't been? Um, no. One of the ones, I one of my books, I actually went there on purpose because I wanted to write a book there, which was The Last Resort, which is set in the Isles of Scilly. So I went there because I wanted to see what that was like. And I'm really glad I did because it wasn't anything like I imagined. <laughs> and I think that if I had just researched that, it would have been very different because there's just little things like going from island to island on a little boat and someone taking your hand and help, you know, just that mm. sort of yeah. little stuff that you wouldn't necessarily get if you were just going, reading, reading about it. So that was the panel on crime set overseas that, that I was chairing. And then later on in the day, you had a really hard job because you were up against Frederick Forsyth. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the scheduling there. That was, yeah, we were on the Marple stage and Freddie was doing a talk in another room. So I honestly expected to walk into a big empty tent, but we had a pretty full tent. And um, you don't realise until you start talking to the audience afterwards just how popular cosy crime is. And the big discussion we had, of course, is, is, is cosy crime an appropriate name? Because, you know, people would probably put Agatha Christie in there, but Agatha Christie is bloody murder all the time and people being killed in horrible ways. And indeed, a lot of cosy crime is. I mean, to my mind, the only real cosy crime is something like Scooby-Doo, isn't it? So well, I suppose she's not necessarily bloody murder. Well, on the cover of the book sometimes, but it's kind of murder without so much blood splashing around. Well, it must be said that, I mean, as you... I'm sure most listeners know Agatha Christie knew her chemistry and most of her people were poisoned. You know, I think 75, 80% of all the people who die in her books are poisoned. But nevertheless, it's still not exactly cosy, is it? I, I think it's probably, as we were discussed, and I won't steal the thunder of what the panel were talking about, but it seems to be it's the setting in which these things take place more than the actual crimes themselves that give it that cosy name. OK, well, again, we're going to have Victoria introduce the panel kind of because it makes me smile to hear how her her approach has changed a bit since she introduced my one earlier in the day. And, she, you know, she's talking about the bar. She's talking about uh, people drinking Bellinis. I wonder, oh, I wonder how she had one herself. Anyway, over to Victoria introducing your panel, Steve. <laughs> Good evening. It's an evening. Yeah, it's evening. I hope you're all enjoying a, a crafty beer from the uh, Who Done Him Inn. <laughs> no. <laughs> a Cipriani Bellini. Two. Sponsored by Sackler. Did you know that Cipriani Bellinis are made by Sackler? Have you had one? 
They're in your goodie bags. Oh, my goodness. That is peachy delight. Anyway, hello. Thank you for joining us for Cozy Crime in our cozy marble stage. Um, right now, we are about to um, witness the majesty of Cozy Crime with our star-spangled um, fireside homicide panellists. I should say thank you all. I feel very loud on this microphone. We, I should say thank you all for being here. Um, today's Festival Chills and Kills is all in aid of Centrepoint Charity. Uh, Prince William is the patron of that charity and its mission is to end youth homelessness. And um, well, we're delighted that you came to support. We're honoured that the, all of the authors that are here today have given their time for free. Uh, we're practically run by volunteers and um, we thank you for your time. Uh, so, without further ado, let me welcome to the stage your chair of the panel, homicide, Fireside Homicide, Mr. Stephen Colgan. Let's hear it for Stephen. <laughs> and his trusty panel, Rachel Ward, Derek Farrell, S.J. Bennett and J.L. Blackhurst. Welcome to the Marple stage. Enjoy. And welcome to you, all the Freddie Forsyth haters. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, was, I was worried that we'd walk in here to, to a, a sea of empty chairs or, or a sort of puddle of angry people who couldn't get into the Freddie Forsyth talk. So I'm delighted to see you all. Welcome, welcome. My name's Steve Colgan. I used to be one of the elves who writes QI, if you know the TV show QI. And then a few years ago, I decided, and I'd, up to that point, I'd written a few books, but they were all non-fiction. And then I had the idea of writing a murder mystery. But what I wanted to do, some of you may be aware of this, that there was, back in the 1920s, all these great authors like Agatha Christie and people like that used to meet up regularly, and they set a set of 10 rules for how murder mysteries should be written. The rules themselves are fascinating. Things like um, not more than one secret room or passage is allowable. Or the criminal must be mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader's been allowed to know. So they really thought about this. Number five is a bit weird. No Chinaman must figure in the story. Um, <laughs> but this was 1929. Anyway, I, I ended up writing a book called A Murder to Die For, which I set out to break every single rule. And I did, and it was great fun. But it took me into the world of cosy crime, for want of a better name. And that's what tonight's discussion is all about. What actually is cosy crime? And is it an appropriate title? And to help me discuss this, we've got some wonderful people here, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves who they are and what they write. Hello, I'm Rachel Ward. I started off writing YA books and um, then I turned to crime. I write psychological thrillers, but for the purposes of this afternoon, I write a cosy crime series set in a supermarket in a small English town in the southwest of England. And my amateur detectives are a supermarket checkout girl, B and her rather gormless, or is he, friend, and Now, the thing me. that struck me about those is the titles of the books, because supermarkets are made for murder mystery titles. Some of the titles of your books? So many puns. The Cost of Living was the first one. See? Dead Stock, <coughs> Expiry Date. Perfect, isn't it? It's <laughs> just made for it. <laughs> they are brilliant. I love those books. It's and great. they're really human, too. They're, they're, you fall in love with the characters, which is great. Aww. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm Derek Farrell. I write the Danny Bird Mysteries, which are a series of contemporary mysteries set in a bar in South London. They've been described as like MC Beaton on MDMA. Um, <laughs> and uh, Eric Idle of Monty Python described them as quite good, which I, I took as, uh, as great praise. And they are very much based on those classic 1930s structures. If you see the books, they all have very Art Deco covers. But what's inside is not 1930s. It's definitely 21st century. Fabulous. Hi, I'm Jenny Blackhurst. I also write psychological thrillers. But for the purpose of today, I've written a not just to be here today. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't that desperate to get on this panel, although it's great. But um, I've also written a, we call it cosy adjacent, because I've broken none of those rules, I don't think. Oh, I don't, okay. I'll have to check the Chinaman rule. But um, <laughs> I've not broken any of your rules, but I've broken a lot of the rules of cosy crime for my new mystery called Three Card Murder and none of my characters are on drugs. Um, <laughs> there's no MDMA in my books, but they are slightly grittier than your average cosy. Um, and they're about a detective in Brighton who, f for want of a better word, discovers a body that's fallen from the sky. 
um, and he's fallen from a locked room with his throat slit and been pushed out of the off the balcony of a locked room. And so that's where my cosy crime adjacent comes in because she's got to turn to the only person she knows who can help solve this crime, which is her con artist sister, who she's been estranged from for 15 years, and also the only other suspect in the murder. And I'm Sophia Bennett. I write as S.J. Bennett, and um, so far I've written the the first trilogy of... uh, series featuring a 90-year-old detective in a series of different locations. Um, And she works with a sidekick called Rosie Ashodi, who was a captain in the British Army. And she is um, Queen Elizabeth II. So they're set in 2016, which is the year of her 90th birthday. And I was thinking, what happened in that year? Surely nothing. And then I look back at 2016 a lot happened in 2016. So, um, yeah, my books sort of cover Brexit and US elections and that kind of thing as well. It is quite an extraordinary thing to actually think, who can I have as a detective? I know, what about the Queen? (laughs) Because when I I first started reading about all of you guys, you know, finding out a bit more about your books and what you're writing, I thought, I I did honestly think it was probably going to be Queen Victoria. I was quite surprised when it was Queen Elizabeth II. Um, She is someone I met a couple of times Never once felt that she was investigating anything. But really? But well, you uh, see, she hid it incredibly uh, well, and that is one of the things that I do. And she's right taken about. it to the grave. Yeah, absolutely. She's taken it As to the grave. As did you with that introduction. You see the twist we didn't see coming. That sounds like a lot of fun. You met the Queen. You see, that's a good comeback. Somebody saying, "This is what the Queen is like," and you were saying, "Well, well, I met her a few times. Well, I only met her once." <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, the Queen. Nice lady. I only met her the once, and and it was only in passing. But she did say thank you to me for standing in the absolute pouring rain outside the. Um, it was some military club on Piccadilly. Yeah, I was standing outside in the rain, and she came out. And she said thank you very much, officer. Thank you very much. I was, well, that's nice of her because shortly after that was followed by my own boss, the commissioner at the time, and he said nothing to me. So <laughs> what can you do? What can you do? But um, no, I've I've met a few of the royals, and they they've all been generally very pleasant uh, apart from one of them who told me to f off once but um i wonder oh i was going to say we all know which one that was but yeah, actually we, right. we don't necessarily because be it could, right. be, could be one or two of them no 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 you'd be right and and he left us shortly before his wife did last year and and to be fair see when i was talking to him he was perfectly nice to me yeah but you a different circumstances what i'm saying to you about circumstances dictate you see because i was walking on a gravel path underneath his bedroom window at two in the morning and um, yeah, I probably disturbed his sleep. But it was shortly after the the business of the intruder in the Queen's bedroom at Buckingham Palace, and they'd beefed up security at Buckingham Palace. I was walking around the gardens during the night time, not wanting to walk on the grass, this beautifully laid out lawn. I thought I'll walk all the way around, the long way around on the gravel path, not realising how much noise it made. So yes, I got told um, in no uncertain terms by a certain prince to um, go forth and multiply. Mm. I think I, I had an arrow escape once at uh, Kensington Palace I happened to be there to do something with Lucy Worsley but round the back uh, of Kensington Palace round right the back of Kensington Palace and uh, it so happened at the front door they had a, a, an old Irish guy on the gate so I was just chatting to him and he was becoming more and more agitated but he wasn't saying anything he, he didn't want to be rude to me but what I didn't realise for a while was behind my back these guys with machine guns were walking up to me because Harry and I think his then girlfriend Chelsea Davy were trying to get in and I was <laughs> blocking the entrance so they couldn't get into their palace. So I, I made my excuses and left. As we finish this episode about Chiltern Kills, this special We'd Like a Word episode on Chiltern Kills, I can exclusively reveal some things about the next one. So Chiltern Kills 2024. Ooh. So we'll be there. <laughs> yeah, we'll be there. We'll be there. We'll be there. We turn up to the opening of an envelope. The It's going to be on the 5th of October. So Saturday, the 5th of October, 9am to 11. One day, same sort of thing. Tickets, £40 again. Every penny of which will go to Centrepoint to combat youth homelessness. But we've got some good headliners. Geoffrey Archer said he'd do it. Ian Rankin. He's Ooh. doing us. And he is going to be interviewed on stage by somebody very good somebody very good indeed in fact somebody who's been on this podcast but I'm not allowed to say who 
but somebody very good indeed. Oh, I say. Who do you think it might be? It's all a mystery. Well, it's, you said very good. Well, it's neither of us then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. It's not it's not either of us. Is it a secret? Are you going to reveal it? It's it's someone who has been a guest on the podcast. I'm not allowed to say who, but it's not an obscure person. Ooh, I'm going to have to give this some thought then. Mm. It, I, I, the only clue I'd give is looking back to the the earlier episodes. Looking back to the earlier episodes. Ooh. So that's very good. Maybe by the time this comes out, we'll, we can say. Also, we'll have um, Louise Minchin, who was BBC Breakfast nice, TV yeah, for yeah, a long yeah. time. She's got into writing crime. Uh, Harriet Tice, Callie, C.L. Taylor. Abir Mukherjee, very popular. His Raj era set um, historical crime novels in India. Very good. I like them a lot. The Secret Barrister. Mm. Whoever he or she is will finally be revealed. Even if he or she is wearing a balaclava, I guess we'll be able to tell. Or I don't know, maybe they'll be in an even bigger giant fat suit to conceal their identity completely. Who knows? This is a, a barrister behind the scenes who's extremely indiscreet about how the uh, criminal justice system Absolutely, really works. Yeah. Nobody knows who they are. This will be their first ever festival, their coming out party. And. We will, do you remember Glynis Barber? I do. So Dempsey and Makepeace. Indeed. So we'll have Dempsey also, and Makepeace. Also Sue Lin in Blake 7. Uh -huh. Science fiction fans. Oh my gosh, this is double, double bonus. Anyway, Michael Brandon, who played Dempsey, and Glynis Barber, who played uh, Lady Makepeace. So they were an on-screen, will-they-won't-they they couple. Well, off-screen, they did, because they got married. They did. And so they will be here. Uh, that's the ITV crime series, Dempsey and Makepeace. They'll be on stage. And we'll have dozens of other top authors as well. well It'll indeed. be really, really good. So. Well, that's my Blake 7 fanboy quotient filled. Yeah. You see, you always bring a bit of sci-fi to any party. <laughs> so what else should we tell people? Uh, I suppose we ought to tell them where it is. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's in Gerrard's Cross, which is in South Buckinghamshire. Important thing to know is it's only 20 minutes from London Marylebone Station. And the venue itself, which is Colston Hall, historic Colston Hall inside Gerrard's Cross, that's just a short walk from the railway station, so you don't even need to drive. And we'll have the Who Dunham Inn again, run by Windsor and Eaton Brewery. We'll have our special murder song karaoke run by Mark Edwards and Ed that James. Again, are you? <laughs> we are doing that again. Ooh. And we'll have our Children Phil's Gourmet Food Village, stuffed tote bags, and um, various celebrity guests from the world of TV and other forms of broadcasting. And of course, patron of the festival. Patron of the festival, Frederick Forsyth. He will be there again. And do you remember Citizen Smith? I do indeed. Robert Lindsay, etc. He'll be there. Robert Lindsay will be there. Well. Yeah, he'll be there. Everyone wants to be at Chiltern Kills after the huge success of 2023. It's going to be good. Oh, the weather's the same. We had a glorious day, didn't we? It was a fantastic day. From beginning to end, it was a fantastic day. Mm. I met so many great authors, met so many great um, fans, I even, this is, this is the high point of the day for me, was that, I mean, Frederick Forsyth, marvellous chap. He's getting on a bit now, and I was kind of looking after him, making sure he got to the green room and back. And I took him over to his book signing session and sat next to him in the bookshop. And a queue formed in front of me as well with people with copies of my book. I didn't even know that any of my books were on sale. <laughs> so I had, I've got this rather marvellous photograph of me and Frederick Forsyth sat next to each other signing books. That one's being framed. It was worth going just for that. It was lovely. It was just great. Everyone was so so friendly and lovely. If we've whetted your appetite, which I hope we have, for you to come to Chiltern Kills, the best way for you to find out the details of all the authors appearing and the order and everything else about it is to go to the festival website, which is www.chilternkills.com. It's called Chiltern Kills because it's in the Chiltern Hills. Chiltern Hills Kills. See what we did? Anyway, www.chilternkills.com and you can buy tickets through the website and uh, find out all about the good cause and everyone who's appearing. And you can come and meet us. 
you might even get on Weed Like a Word. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? We're looking at uh, maybe upping our, our content of citizen reviews as well, which would be quite interesting. Mm. That's a good point. If you would like to be a reviewer on Weed Like a Word, we get sent lots of books, more than we can handle. Lots of people want to be on, lots of authors, and it's hard to fit everyone in. So we would like to palm some of that hard work off onto you. If you'd like to become a reviewer, get in touch We'd like a word at gmail.com. Yeah, but it's wed like a word, of course, at gmail.com. Wed like a word at gmail.com. Or you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter. It's we'd like a word, basically, at wed like a word, all one word. And let us know if you're interested in becoming a reviewer and if there's a particular genre of book that you're interested in. And um, we'll send you the book. You can read it and then we'll do a quick interview with you on what you think and Great spread idea. the word yeah spread the word share the load anything to avoid having to do it ourselves <laughs> yeah on the next episode of we'd like a word whenever it may come out we'll be talking book covers we with will. with mark ecob who is a very well known within the industry anyway uh, book cover designer not so much an illustrator in himself but a designer his work has won awards and and he's just a really really interesting guy to talk to so because it's not as simple as i've got a nice picture let's put it on the cover this a particular speciality of making things work making them familiar enough making them distinctive enough making them work on the shelf and making people want to pick up the book and open it absolutely and and even to the extent of having to work out how to make that cover pop when it's only a one-inch high icon on, on a book website. I mean, he's, uh, he's a very interesting man to listen to. I should say that he also did the cover of one of my favourite books, By Me, Blackwater Town. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also but you can blame him for it. He also yeah. designed the covers to mine, even though the, the artwork was done by people like Tom Gould and people like this. But yeah, he's a, he's a great designer and he knows how to create the right cover for the right book. Okay, so that will be next time. Anyway, listen to that whenever that comes out. And please do come to the next Children Kills, because it'll be ace. In the meantime, goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you for listening to Eat Like a Word. Mm-hmm.